0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October the 29th, 2023, the last Sunday in 2023. We're almost in November, Uh, getting chilly here in San Francisco almost a year ago. Um, well, uh, in November of last year, I had a great show with one of America's leading experts on free speech, Jeff Kossev. He teaches at the Naval Academy um, and uh, is uh, quite an authority on all legal aspects associated with free speech. When he was on the show last year, we talked about his book, The 26 Words That Created the Internet, a book, the book about Section 230, and it was very timely. Um, The Supreme Court was about to take up a case associated with 230. Gonzalez versus Google, it got determined uh, earlier in the year, and uh, at least according to the Washington Post and most other uh, media uh, it represented a victory for google twitter and and the internet uh have to add the caveat that my wife is the head of litigation at google so uh I've heard probably too much about section two thirty although not from such an unbiased fellow as jeff um jeff what uh what happened a- and has the case been resolved now given that the Gonzalez versus Google Supreme Court hearing seems to have been determined in favor of Google and the internet companies?
1: Well, so in the Gonzalez case, the Supreme Court basically punted on deciding how to interpret Section 230. Uh, the, this was a case brought uh, by the family of someone who was killed in a terror, ISIS terror attack, and was suing. Uh, Google for YouTube's alleged algorithmic promotion and personalization of ISIS supporting content under a law called the Anti-Terrorism Act, which allows victims of terrorism and their families to be able to sue. Um, Google had claimed Section 230 as well as other defenses, and the Supreme Court basically said, we're not going to even look at Section 230 because instead what we're going to say is that there's not a viable claim under the Anti-Terrorism Act. So it was a fairly narrow ruling. And when you listen to the oral arguments at the Supreme Court, it was pretty clear that the justices didn't wanna have much to do with the case uh, and much to do with Section 230 because uh, it's a really tough issue. And some of the justices seem to think this is ultimately something that Congress is gonna have to deal with in terms of deciding whether to change Section 230
0: so it wasn't such a big victory for the big tech companies you uh you wrote an interesting piece suggesting that nine people and we know who those nine people are hold the internet's fate in their hands you suggesting they punted and threw uh through this case over to congress so it's not finished yet
1: they did and uh justice kagan said something i don't have the exact quote in front of me but during the oral argument in the case she said something along the lines of we're not the nine greatest experts on the internet Um, suggesting that this is a really important decision in terms of what to do with Section 230 and that it's probably better for the elected representatives to make those decisions rather than nine people in robes.
0: Another way of interpreting what Kagan said is that it's perhaps almost too important for the Supreme Court to determine the fate of the Internet and it needs to be, what, a political decision by Congress or even by the President?
1: Yeah. So Section 230 is a policy choice. Uh, This was something at the dawn of the commercial Internet in 1996, where Congress provided these very broad protections for online platforms. And for better or worse, it's really helped to shape what those platforms look like today and what uh, Justice Kagan seemed to be implying is, you know, whether that was a good or bad decision, that's something that Congress will have to look at.
0: You mentioned, Jeff, that there were two cases. There was the Gonzalez versus Google case, and there was another one uh, specifically involving Twitter, which seems to focus more on free speech. Tell me what happened with that one.
1: Well, so that was actually the case. There were very similar fact patterns. Um, it was one one lawsuit against Google, one lawsuit against um Twitter, but it was under the same statute, um, and so the the Tomna v. Twitter case that ended up being decided under the uh, the Anti-Terrorism Act, finding that there's not a claim. And so what the court did is they issued both opinions on the same day, and they said, okay, what we're going to do is in the TomNA case explain why there's not enough. Uh, to demonstrate that a platform that allegedly amplifies ISIS content is the causation necessary to uh, give rise to an anti-terrorism act claim, and then we're going to import that holding to the Google case and say, because of the reasoning in the Tomna case, we're also going to say there's not liability for Google, and we just won't have to deal with Section 230. Those were actually two cases that when they were in the lower appellate court, they were actually decided together.
0: Are these, I, I introduced you as, a, as one of America's free speech experts, authorities, uh, are these cases, though, really about free speech? I mean, anyone can publish anything online. They might be liable, but it doesn't stop them actually publishing it. And if they're not able to put it on YouTube or Twitter, they'll just put it on their own blog.
1: Well, so platforms have played such an increasingly important role in speech that um, when you limit people's access to platforms, that will effectively have an impact on their ability for their speech to reach people. So yes, anyone could have a blog, but it's much more difficult to be able to reach people if you're just posting something on your own website versus being able to go onto a social media site and have a certain particularly effective posts or thoughts be amplified by other users and shared around the world.
0: And presumably in terms of Section 230, if you publish something that's quote unquote against the law on a blogging platform, is that blogging platform as liable theoretically as Twitter or YouTube?
1: Well, yeah. So, um, Section 230 applies just as much to a blogging platform as it would to a social media platform. The law actually calls them interactive computer service providers, and it's very broadly defined. It encompasses websites, it encompasses a newspaper websites, comment section, um, anything that takes content that's generated by parties other than the company that operates the website or the platform. Now, when you say illegal content, one thing to keep in mind is that Section 230 has always had an exception for federal criminal law. So um, if you're saying what, what Section 230 most usually comes into play for is, are things like defamation and other civil actions but uh to the extent that there is something that's illegal under federal criminal law section 230 is not going to shield the platform
0: jeff do, do web3 decentralized platforms like mastodon or blue sky do they theoretically change anything if if if, if for example the supreme court had determined the, the 230 case differently Would stuff published on decentralized platforms like Mastodon, would these platforms have been equally liable under the law?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, it it always depends on the exact fact pattern. So like I would said, if a provider actually contributes materially to the creation of the content, then that provider won't receive Section 230 protections. Now, uh, I, I think decentralized platforms are unique, because they, they, there are a lot of different ways that they can distribute content. But one thing to keep in mind is Section 230 applies both to users and providers of interactive computer services. So uh, even to the extent that someone is someone is using uh, Mastodon or another decentralized service and uh, shares content that was fully created by someone else, um, they won't be liable for that content unless an exception to 230 applies.
0: We are speaking with Jeff Kossoff. He teaches at the Naval Academy, is one of America's leading authorities on free speech. Um, he's been busy since that Supreme Court ruling. He's come out with two books in the meantime. One, The United States of Anonymous, uh, uh, How the First Amendment Shaped Online speech. And most recently, he has a book out. It's out this month, this week, actually, Liar in a Crowded Theater Freedom of Speech in a World of Misinformation. Before we get on to the latest book, um, Jeff, maybe you'll say something because you and I have never really spoken about the United States of Anonymous. What are you arguing in this book?
1: So, in that book, I argue that uh, anonymous speech, both online and offline, is a really fundamental value of free speech that too often gets ignored and often is under threat because people have a misconception about the value of anonymous speech. And when you look to our history of our country, uh, really anonymous and pseudonymous speech is at the root of some of the most important speech that helped to establish our country. I mean, the, uh, Common Sense by Thomas Paine was just signed as written by an Englishman uh, because there there were a variety of reasons why uh, during the colonial times people would not want to associate their name with what they're writing, uh, not for any nefarious reasons, but because they might fear for their safety, they might their speech might have different effect if they're not associating their name with it. The Federalist Papers uh, that Hamilton, Madison, and Jay wrote, they signed it Publius. And that wasn't because they um, feared for their safety. We already had independence. Uh, they were trying to argue for the ratification of the Constitution, and uh, they knew their names might carry certain baggage with those arguments, so they wanted to separate those names. So um, I, I look at those values, and I pl- apply them to today's debates, where we're seeing a number of states around the country that are trying to uh, erode or entire, uh, entirely eliminate the ability to be anonymous, uh, because they they have some misconceptions about why people might not want to associate their names with what they post online. So I argue uh, a, that that Uh, states, courts, should continue to provide very robust protections for anonymity.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the Federalist Papers and Payne's um, Common Sense. We're doing a show in association with C-SPAN. They're running a series called The Ten Books That Shaped America. And two of the three of these first books are the Payne book and the Federalist Papers. So it's interesting to think that Two of the original three books that shaped America are written anonymously. I take your point, Jeff, but what about anonymity, which is clearly meant nefariously? What about anonymity of people online who were paid by the Russians or, or, or by al-Qaeda or by ISIS or some other illegal organization? Yeah, so I mean, just like any
1: speech, there's good and bad speech. Uh there, there's never we're never going to be in a situation where everything is positive. It's do the harms outweigh the benefits of reducing those speech protections. And the right to anonymity is not absolute. It's uh it's qualified. The Supreme Court starting in the 1950s recognized a qualified right to be anonymous. So Uh, If you do something um, that is particularly egregious and illegal, then you can have your anonymity pierced. But my argument is that we should not erode everyone's anonymity because of these bad actors. And I think also you look at what people do under their real names and a lot of that isn't all that great either. Uh, Facebook, for example, has always had a real name policy where you have to post under your real name. And I think anyone who's used Facebook would agree that there are at least some portions of it that have some pretty awful stuff on it. So uh, getting rid of anonymity will not uh, solve all our problems.
0: It's interesting, you bring up Facebook, I was thinking of, 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 of throwing that question at you, at least on Facebook, you're gonna say something unpleasant, nefarious, sexist, racist, or just particularly controversial, you're accountable for it. W- what is the role of accountability when it comes to the law?
1: Well, so you're gonna be accountable if you if you do something illegal, um, you can I mean, most- Yeah, but then no one that. knows who you are. Well, but, but there's also a role, it, it, there's a role to be played for anonymity for a number of people who don't have the luxury of everyone knowing who they are. So for me, for example, I'm a professor with job protections and I can speak under my real name because I have that luxury, but a lot of people don't have that. Um, Anonymity in the history of the United States and definitely on the history of the internet, has been used by people who are describing unsafe working conditions, who are whistleblowers, who are in so many different disadvantaged groups where it's not it, its not that they're trying to evade accountability, it's that they fear for their livelihoods or, or their safety. So there's a number of reasons why people really can't, it, it's not that they're just trying to sort of dodge accountability. It's that they they have very good reasons to not be able to speak under their real names. So if they weren't able to be anonymous or pseudonymous, they just would not have a voice at all.
0: We're speaking with Jeff Kossif, the author of a really intriguing new book, uh, Liar in a Crowded Theater. We're going to come on to that after the break. And I also want to ask Jeff what his take is on the current state of free speech in america but i want to before we get there i want to thank our sponsor liberties a quarterly journal of culture and politics excellent new publication that flourishes in our free speech age going to run a short ad for liberties and then we'll be back with jeff kossoff one of america's leading uh free speech advocates and scholars to talk about the current state of free speech in america and whether or not Uh, one should be allowed to lie in a crowded theater. Lie, in other words, not tell the truth. We'll be back in a second. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with Jeff Kossoff. He was on the show last year, talking about uh, Section 238. He's on the show this year, talking about a new book. He's got out, uh, Lie in a Crowded Theater. Before we get to the book, Jeff, What's your state what's your sense of the current state of free speech um, in America? Uh, We um, we did a show with and I'm sure you're familiar with his work, Greg Lukianoff. Um, He has a new book out, The Canceling of the American Mind, suggesting or at least he argued on the show that he thinks things are as bad now as they were in the McCarthyite period. You noted earlier that you can say what you want because you have a job, but his argument is you say what you want and you lose your job. What's your sense of this canceling movement? Is is Greg onto something? I'm I'm sure you're familiar with his uh, FIRE organization which protects free speech.
1: Yeah, I'm familiar with it and I greatly admire it. It's actually one of the few organizations that I think takes principled stance on free speech, regardless of the underlying partisan outcomes. And I think the fact that I say it's one of the few organizations that does that is a very scary thing because um, before uh, 20, 30 years ago, uh, that would not have been a very radical position to say, okay, we're going to have a certain core set of free speech principles and we will defend them regardless of who we're defending. Uh, we're, if we think something's a First Amendment violation, we don't care if it's a liberal or conservative, we're going to defend it. And, and we don't see that nearly as much. And I think, so I agree uh, with, the, with Greg's overall assessment of the state of free speech, because I think both from the left and the right, people are very willing to defend their the, the, the people who they agree with and say that any attempts to silence them are a violation of free speech and the First Amendment, but they're completely fine with uh, similar tactics being used against people with whom they disagree. And that's just not how a viable system of free speech can work. And I think that... They're often willing to sort of twist what the First Amendment actually says as the Supreme Court's interpreted it for more than a century. And all of that, I think, really starts to erode what, what we have. I mean, what, what we have in the United States has been a century of very expansive protections for free speech. Um, the United States in the first, uh, in, in the earliest days, was had had some fairly uh, bleak moments with free speech. But I I think that for the past century, uh, the Supreme Court has been wonderful in really broadly protecting speech regardless of the outcomes. But I I think that the Supreme Court also, to some extent, will reflect uh, public sentiment. And I very much worry about the prospect of the public sentiment against free speech kind of trickling onto the Supreme Court. I hope that doesn't happen um, because when I, when I think about free speech and people disagree with me, but my biggest concern with free speech um, is the, the government using regulations, liability, court orders, prison, to punish people for saying things or prevent them from ever being able to say things. And I worry that we've twisted the meaning of the First Amendment so much, that um, if that gradually starts to happen, people won't be all that upset about
0: it. It's particularly pertinent, of course, this week with what's happening in Israel, Gaza, Um, A lot of people believe that uh, the suppression of Israel's critics bolsters the case for free speech. Al Jazeera notes that the double standards of free speech on Palestine uh, really reflect the hypocrisy of an American elite. Is there some truth to that? Do people have the right, for example, under the law, Jeff, to fire people or not hire people if they articulate positions that somebody thinks are wrong or immoral?
1: Well, so it all depends. I mean, I, I'm not an employment lawyer, um, and I, I, so so I, I think that um, one thing to keep in mind is that um, the First Amendment has something known as the State Action Doctrine, which uh, says that the First Amendment prohibits the government, whether it's a court, uh, an executive branch agency, or a legislative agency at the federal or state or local level from suppressing free speech. Um, for a purely private entity, uh, while there might be other legal restrictions on their ability uh, to go after people for their speech, if it's a pure, the purely independent decision of a private entity, uh, that's not going to be a First Amendment issue. Now, the one caveat to that, which we're going to see in a case coming up to the Supreme Court this year, is what happens if the government exert substantial pressure on a private company, such as a social media platform, to uh, silence someone's constitutionally protected speech. That's something known as jawboning. Um, And that's something that we don't have very clear guidance on from the Supreme Court. The best that we have are some cases from the 1960s involving bookstores, which don't really apply very well to the modern age. And I think we're, by next June, we're going to have better guidance as to what would constitute impermissible job
0: We live, of course, and everyone would agree to this, in, a, to, in an age of misinformation. And this is what your new book, the book that's just out um, this week, Liar in a Crowded Theater, Freedom of Speech in a World of Misinformation. Uh, we all know the phrase that you're not allowed to uh, utter the words fire in a crowded theater. That's a, an old wife's tale or an old husband's tale. Uh, is it against free speech, uh, Jeff, to articulate that? Should we be allowed to lie in a crowded theater, L-I-E?
1: Well, so um, it depends. Um, so the First Amendment protections are not absolute, um, and the, but but they're very strong. They're stronger than the free speech protections in pretty much any other country in the world. And I argue that's a good thing. Uh, The problem is, and the reason why I I actually had not had this title for the book when I had initially proposed it, uh, but it was overall a defense of legal protections for many falsehoods. Uh, Now, it's not there. There's really no debate that there's no absolute protections for falsehoods. So there's certain types of falsehoods that you'll face consequences for. Uh, For example, if you lie under oath in court, you're going to face perjury prosecutions. And no, nobody seriously argues that people should have the right to perjure themselves in court. That would be ridiculous. Uh, The problem is that uh, a whole lot of other false speech or allegedly false speech is constitutionally protected. and. The reason why I gave my book this title was that as I was looking at cases where governments or litigants made really uh, improper efforts to penalize people for allegedly false speech, the argument that would come up time and time again is just as you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, you also cannot say X, Y, or Z when ultimately a court would say, oh, no, actually you could say X, Y, or Z. Um, But fire in a crowded theater has become sort of a wild card for anyone who wants to just say the First Amendment doesn't apply to what you're trying to protect. And uh, when you look at the history of the phrase, it becomes clear why it's so dangerous. So um, the common saying is, you know, the Supreme Court said you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, which is somewhat of the truth. Um, there, There was never a case in the Supreme Court involving someone yelling fire in a crowded theater, but the phrase actually came from a Supreme Court opinion in 1919 where the Supreme Court unanimously upheld the conviction of a socialist in Philadelphia who had distributed leaflets that, was, that were criticizing the military draft. And the Supreme Court said that this poses a clear and present danger to the nation as it's preparing for war. And um, the defendant had made a First Amendment argument, and he said, no, the First Amendment doesn't apply here or the, the, the Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said, uh, just as you can't shout fire in a theater and falsely shout fire in a theater and cause a panic, you also cannot cause a clear and present danger by criticizing the military draft. And um, under today's standards, uh, that, that's, that ruling has been abrogated significantly where you can criticize the military draft. But um, what has lived on from that opinion more than that, actual military draft pamphlet has been the saying that you can't yell fire in a crowded theater and to be clear there are times when you will face liability for uh lying about a fire in a crowded theater and causing people to trample each other that we have false alarm statutes we have uh disorderly conduct citations you we i mean we we have statutes about calling in bomb threats so so none of that is really controversial it's more what it's being used to justify and we see politicians uh currently routinely talking about fire in a crowded theater yeah i
0: mean I, it comes to mind that the, the trump example if if you could prove that you that we knew that trump was lying in terms of encouraging demonstrations against the election. How does that connect with your argument? Are you are you suggesting that he does have the right legally under the US Constitution to, to lie and tell people something that he knows isn't actually true?
1: Oh, well, um in that example, I mean there there are cases ongoing and I should be clear I'm only speaking on my, my behalf, not on my the behalf of my employer. Um but for that there there is a higher standard actually in the case that overruled the military draft, uh, clear and present danger standard, uh, which is imminent incitement of lawless action, where the Supreme Court, this this was a case involving um, the prosecution of a Ku Klux Klan leader in the 1960s, where the Supreme Court said you have to show imminent incitement of lawless action, not just that it poses a clear and present danger. And it's a very high bar because you have to both show that the speaker intended to cause imminent lawless action and that the speech was likely to cause that imminent lawless action. And uh, the court has interpreted this as to be a very high standard. So I, I don't want to get into predicting what's going to happen in any of Trump's cases, but I will say that that case from 1919, um, at least to the extent of the clear and present danger. That's been narrowed substantially.
0: Are you essentially arguing in this book, Jeff, and I'm always trying to simplify things, you as a law professor probably don't like that, but are you suggesting that we can't really regulate falsehood, particularly in a social media age in which a large proportion of, of what's broadcast and articulated isn't true?
1: So not at all. I mean, there, nobody there there's been one Supreme Court justice in U.S. history who has said that the First Amendment is absolute and he's not been alive for a while and nobody ever agreed with him. Um, who that? that That was Hugo Black. Uh, he believed that Congress shall make no law meant Congress shall make no law. Um, but no, nobody really seriously believes that. I gave the perjury example. Um, you also can't lie to a federal agent. You can't commit fraud. Um, but these are all exceptions to the First Amendment that the court has narrowly defined over the decades to preserve that strong balance in favor of free speech. And what I argue is not that we should eliminate all these exceptions. That would be ridiculous. It, it's instead that we should not broaden these exceptions without incredibly carefully looking at all of the harms that could flow from doing so. So it's not that we can never rethink First Amendment protections. It's just just that we have to be far more careful than many politicians and lawyers and commentators have been and we can't just wave the fire in a crowded theater wand and say, okay, well, we just won't protect this whole swath of speech. And there are re- good reasons for it. I mean, the, one one of the things, one, one of the justifications when you look at a lot of the uh, court opinions that underlies it is that uh, while, yes, there are some um, easily discernible truths and falsehoods, there's also a lot where we're kind of just using our best knowledge at the time. And I think COVID was a good example of that, where we had the scientific consensus changing quite a bit because this was all new. And the government was not able to freeze discussion about it because we have the first amendment, unlike in other countries. So you think back to the beginning of the pandemic and what mm. the public health consensus was about, You know, is COVID airborne? It would, remember we were washing our hands all day and spraying bleach on the counters and because everyone, the, the consensus was, this is surface transmitted, not airborne. And that obviously changed. Uh, guidance about masks have changed. But we're able to have that debate. And we're not able to have the ministry of truth just say, this is what's true. And you've got to shut up about anything else.
0: Yeah. And given the way in which all these things, even this hard science that most people don't understand gets politicized is particularly relevant. Uh, Is your conclusion, Jeff, in the book that we need to quote unquote uh, this is one of the reviews in the washington post of your thinking tread lightly on misinformation
1: in terms of regulation i think yes because i don't think i i also think another reason is it's not terribly effective um it's it's open to abuse uh even if you trust the people who currently are in power uh there could be new people in power and you might not trust them as much you might not agree with them as much but once you get rid of those protections. They're not coming back anytime soon. So I, I think we have to look beyond the immediate impulse to regulate and put people in prison and find people and look at other ways to deal with misinformation, because I do I, I'm not saying I'm not dismissing concerns about misinformation. I'm just saying that the punitive methods are very dangerous and not terribly effective. So um, if the government instead could do a better job of explaining itself. Um, I, I'd say in the past few years, there have been a number of cases where the government has been woefully inadequate in its explanation of, misin- uh, of its rebuttal to misinformation. And um, I, I think that's harder. I think educating people, so they better have the tools to go after um, falsehoods. So, so if you're confronted with a claim that the vaccines have microchips in it, how do you look for primary sources uh, rather than just reflexively believe the first thing that you see on social media? There are other countries that do a much better job uh, that have made media literacy really a component of public education starting in kindergarten. And uh, again, it's not, not the government saying this is what the one truth is, but instead saying this is how you could actually help sort this torrent of information that's coming at you.
0: Yeah, I have to admit I'm a little more skeptical on that one. The idea of media literacy in our age of media illiteracy seems quite ambitious. Last time you were on the show, as I said, last November, it was just before the Section 230 uh, issue, the Gonzalez versus Google case got heard at the Supreme Court. And next year, early next year, there are landmark Texas and Florida social media cases which have been added to the Supreme Court term. So this book is not just a, a broad analysis of the law. It actually has concrete, specific implications for what the Supreme Court will be hearing next year. Tell us about these two cases, the, uh, the, the, the Florida and the, and the Texas court, uh, the, 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 the Texas and the Florida cases. In terms of social media and how it connects with your arguments in a "Liar in a Crowded Theater,"
1: so both Texas and Florida passed laws that were really born out of concerns by conservatives who have said that the social media platforms have been unfairly um, centering conservative voices. So, uh, so while. There's a lot of speech that is protected by the First Amendment, stuff like hate speech. Most of what we consider to be misinformation is First Amendment protected. As I was talking about, what the First Amendment means is that the government cannot censor you. But um, it does not prevent a social media platform from independently of the government making the decision that, you know, we don't want this sort of stuff on our platform because we don't think it's a very good environment for our users. So. Many of the large platforms have policies on misinformation, hate speech, a whole lot of other stuff that the government can't really regulate. And um, what Texas and Florida did was pass laws that limit the ability of these platforms to engage in certain types of moderation. Um, and, And what I argue in the book is that the platform should have the ability to do this. Uh, just as I don't want the government telling platforms what they cannot put on their sites, I also don't want the government telling platforms what they must put on their sites. And uh, I, I think that ultimately, if a platform over moderates and is takes down too much content or leaves too much up, that can be something that the marketplace deals with that, you know, people will walk away from it. And I also think that the platforms have their own First Amendment rights to be able to make these decisions. Uh, they're businesses that should be able to determine what kind of environment do they want their users to have. And so, I, I think it's really uh, dangerous for the government to start telling platforms, "You must keep this up." Um, and I, there, the the. There were two different cases that are going up to the Supreme Court, um, both uh, from judges who Donald Trump appointed. Uh, one found that the Florida law was, unconst- was likely unconstitutional. The other found that the Texas law likely was constitutional. So, this is something the Supreme Court will have to resolve. And I very much hope that it preserves the strong First Amendment values of keeping the government out of the internet.
0: You suggested that the, 230, uh, uh, that the Section 230 cases uh, determines the future of the Internet. Uh, you, you, you had a piece, uh, nine people holds the Internet fate in their hands when it came to them hearing the, the Supreme Court hearing the, the 230 case this year. What about next year? Is this as important this case is being held? Could they quite literally break the Internet if they make the wrong decision?
1: So I think that the case coming up this year is far more important um, because. Wow,
0: more important even than 230?
1: Absolutely, because for 230, that's 230 is always something that Congress can change. They could get rid of it tomorrow. They could strengthen it tomorrow. Um, and it was also fairly clear that the Supreme Court could always dodge the 230 issue, which it did um, for these cases involving Texas and Florida the Supreme Court doesn't have an easy out. It You have two different federal circuits that have opinions that directly conflict with one another. That's called a circuit split. And in the United States federal system, we really don't like having different interpretations of the First Amendment, depending on what part of the country you're in. So the Supreme Court will have to make this decision. And sort of to step back, uh, there was a case in 1997 involving actually the other part of the law that Section 230 is in. So Section 230 was a bit of a compromise and there was a law that was included with it that basically restricted the ability of platforms to allow indecent content on the Internet. And the argument was that the Internet is just like broadcast TV, which the government is able to regulate. And the Supreme Court very strongly in 1997, really at the dawn of the commercial Internet, rejected that argument and said, no, the internet is not like broadcast. The internet is this new medium of open communication with the full scope of First Amendment protections, and the government has to get out of it, keep the government out of regulating the internet. And that's been the approach of courts since 1997. I think that these net choice cases, the Florida and Texas case cases, really are presenting an opportunity for the Supreme Court for the first time to seriously reconsider that argument and to take a stance where, okay, well, maybe the Internet's become so important that we have to regulate it more, like broadcast. And I think that could really upend the entire free Internet that we've known for decades now.
0: We would say this, Jeff, though, every every Supreme Court case we have free speech advocates like yourself telling us that if if the Supreme Court makes the wrong decision, that means the end of the Internet. Aren't you a little bit uh, of, of, of of the kid who is always crying? wolf? not you personally, but advocates of free speech. The Internet is unbreakable, isn't it?
1: Well, to be clear, it's not going to end the Internet. I think it will upend the Internet. Um, well, i it mode, as we know it, but it's I, not
0: working very well at the moment in terms of all the lies and nonsense on it, some people might argue.
1: Well, I I would encourage those people to think about what we would have done during the lockdowns if there was not the Internet. I mean, our economy would not have functioned. I, I think, yes, the Internet is not perfect. I think there's some really bad stuff on the Internet. Um, and and I, I think also that the Internet has just been so impactful in every aspect of society and our economy. And yes, I, I, I think and I give some potential solutions to deal with misinformation, but the argument shouldn't be well, because there's some bad stuff on the Internet, let, let's either end it or have the government just start regulating it like the electric company. Uh, I mean, this is involving speech, and I think that it would be very dangerous to really revamp the internet and make it something where the government is able to approve everything that people and platforms do.